Welcome to Gender Trouble. We're here speaking with Reverend Tyler Connolly, and it's actually Christmas Eve. Merry for, Christmas. Yeah, Happy Solstice. Merry Christmas. Yeah. I went to uh, Tyler's church on Sunday, and Tyler reminded me of something that, you know, the three religions that are doing the most fighting are, you know, the Jewish religion, the the, uh, the uh, Islam or the Muslims, and the... Uh, and the Christians. But we all recognize Abraham as our father. We're all descendants of Abraham. So, and, I, and it made me remember that when I used to drive a school bus for the Southwest Christian Center, we used to sing this song called Father Abraham. And so it was a fun song, but it, it sort of, I can't sing it all, but it goes something like, Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and I forgot the rest. But anyway, <laughs> we are all sons of Father Abraham, and it was a fun song, you know, put one hand in and shake it, and you put the other arm in and shake it, and stand up, sit down, and it was a great camp song. So we're going to be talking about the Bible and homosexuality, which has been very important for me. And also we're going to talk about, are there transgender characters in the Bible? Did the Bible really address that? Which uh, I think it did. Yeah, we believe that it did. So I would like to continue from last week. We we're talking about the clobber passages. And what we mean by the clobber passages, it's the passages that some fundamentalist Christians use to persecute gay and sexual and gender minority people. And we showed last week that none of these passages really have anything to do with modern uh, gay or homosexual relationships that are, you know, committed and loving they were talking about uh, sexual abuse and rape and many things like that. So we're going to continue on then and kind of covered, you know, last week we covered the clobber passage, but we haven't talked about the positive images in the Bible and the positive stories in the Bible about, I would say, uh, homosexual or gay and, and lesbian relationships in the Bible. Can I just say one quick thing about the clobber passages? Because I think that, you know, there are some people who still struggle with one clobber passage or, you know, with a particular passage that they're just like, I can't, I understand, but I just don't, you know, this one particular passage really troubles me. Um, That's the way Tony Campola was with Romans chapter one. Um, Tony Campola is a, a very prominent Baptist minister and um, his wife has been pro-gay for years, and he just was still was like, but I can't get past Romans 1. We've actually read some of his and, books. <laughs> and, but then what he finally discovered, and I think what is important, is that if there's only one passage that's really making you struggle about whether or not you can love your gay brothers and sisters, then really the law of love should trump that. You know, yes, that's because, what I always say. Because there's so much more in the Bible that why would we let our wrong interpretation of one passage that we just can't, for whatever reason in our minds, can't get past, cause us to be unkind and non-compassionate and unloving 
to our LGBT sisters and brothers. Um, so I just wanted to put that out there as sort of a closing for talking about the clobber yeah, passages. That's last how week. I felt, and the way I worded it, if we are going to err, you know, in the sight of the Lord, if we feel maybe we're erring, but there's a strong arguments going the other direction and how we feel, why don't we just err on the side of grace? Right. If we're going to err and we think we might be erring, we could feel in our hearts that we're uncomfortable, but this is how we think, then why not err on, on the side of grace, which is what Jesus had asked us to do. Right. And so, anyway... Uh, so now so, we can talk about the yeah, affirming so let's passages go on. in the and Bible. So one of my favorite, favorite all-time stories in the Bible is the story of Ruth. In fact, we love that story so much, we named our youngest daughter Ruth. Hmm. So please, Tyler, tell us about that story. So I, I think that the important thing for, for LGBT people about the story of Ruth is not whether or not Ruth and Naomi had a romantic or sexual relationship, because I don't think that we'll ever know. There's no way to read the text and have an idea for sure. But these were two women in a society where a woman without a man was nothing, who chose to commit themselves to each other. And for generations, for generations and generations and generations, we have used the text from Ruth in weddings. When they decide to commit themselves to each other, Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Let God do thus and so to me if anything different happens. And so for generations, we've used that verse because it's such a beautiful verse of committing yourself to another person and saying, your family is now my family. My family is your family. We are together on this journey and we've recognized that as a beautiful recognition of a loving relationship and have used it in straight weddings for generations. And yet there are people who say, but if two men or two women were to say those words to each other, even though two women did say those words to each other in the Bible, somehow it would be bad. Somehow it would be wrong. Somehow that kind of love would, would not be allowed. You know, the other thing about Ruth and Naomi is that Ruth is a Moabite. And the Moabites were sort of the ultimate other in the Hebrew scriptures. They are those terrible other people, which is often the way that Christians, some Christians think about gay people or Muslims or whoever. And in the story of Ruth and Naomi, Ruth, this terrible other, um, whose ancestor had incest, and that's how the first Moab, the man named Moab, from whom the Moabites came, the story goes that his mother had sex with her father, and that's where he came from, and therefore they're terrible people and sexual minorities. And that this woman, who is a Moabite, becomes our family and becomes part of our clan through love, because we welcome her in. And then she becomes the grandmother of David, 
the king, which means that she's the ancestress of Jesus. And so all of that, I think, is a reminder that we need to be careful who we think is out and that when we allow love to triumph, then things like David's triumph and Jesus' birth are possible. Yeah, yeah, I like that. You know, I saw the story being enacted in Jerusalem. There was a street fair on this street called Emek Rafim. Mm-hmm. You know, the Valley of the Giants is what it means, but it's a popular street in Jerusalem. And we were walking, visiting a street fair, kind of, and there they were enacting the story of Ruth. And it was so exciting to watch it, and, and uh, especially we had our daughter with us, Ruth. <laughs> and, uh, of course, it was all in Hebrew, but it was very powerful and nice to see. And I think also that right now, Ruth and Naomi are such an important story as we have politicians saying, you know, we have to close our borders, we have to keep certain people out. As, as hate is beginning to take hold in people's hearts, r- the story of Ruth and Naomi, of an immigrant who became family and then became the ancestor of Jesus, is an even more important story. And, and the fact that it's also a story of a love between two women who build a house together and take care of each other makes it even more powerful for me. And I do think that it's really unimportant. I, I think the whole component of whether it was whether it was a platonic love or romantic love is just unimportant. You know, one of the other um, powerful parts of that story for me is that that identifies the relationship with Naomi as primary, is that at the end of the story, Ruth does marry a man. She marries Boaz. And when Boaz and Ruth have a child, the women of the village say, Naomi finally has a son because her sons had died. And they take Ruth's child and they place it in Naomi's lap. Yeah. I think identifying once again that this is the primary relationship. That yes, Boaz was important and Boaz made it possible for them to live their lives, but that that relationship with Naomi was primary. Right. And they were so poor. I mean, yes. the thing is, Naomi and Ruth were absolutely so poor that Ruth had to glean wheat from the already harvested fields to get something to eat. And Boaz then took pity or, you know, care mm-hmm. for uh, Ruth. And eventually then they did, you know, have a relationship. Yeah. It's such a rich and complex story. Yeah, it is. It's yeah. uh, my favorite. Yes. <laughs> so is there anything else about that story uh, you want to talk about, you know? Not at the moment. You know, sometimes people, I, I couldn't help thinking, uh, that we don't know whether it's platonic or romantic. Well, isn't right. that the same as uh, Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude <laughs> Stein? Everybody talked about it, you know, and because they had such a deep relationship, mm-hmm. and they wrote poems about it, and they uh, and it was huge. But nobody really knows, right? And, and it, there's and it's sort of not anybody's business, right? There's a um, back in the day when when people weren't as interested in other people's sex lives. There was this idea of the Boston marriage, and it was a Boston marriage is when two women choose to live together, and 
they are each other's sort of partners for life. But no one ever cared or wondered or worried about whether or not those two women were having sex. Right. They were just committed to each other. That's what made it a Boston marriage. Yeah. And yeah, with Alice B. Toklas and Gertrude Stein, you know, I think many of their contemporaries thought of that as like a Boston marriage, and they, it didn't matter. Yeah, What it mattered that matter. they loved each other. Yeah, so I'm going to have to take a break, okay. and we'll be back. Okay, we're back with Gender Troubled. We're talking to uh, Reverend, Reverend Tyler Connolly, and we're talking about uh, relationships in the Bible that can be or perhaps really were uh, loving homosexual relationships. And, you know, the thing that I want to point out, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, whether they're consummated or not, or how they had their relationship. What matters is there were two women, and, and we're going to talk about two men now, that really loved each other deeply and dearly in a sense of actually passionate love. I mean, they would give their lives for each other. So the next couple we're going to talk about, I assume, is David and Jonathan. Okay. Yeah. You know, I think that David and Jonathan, there's no doubt in my mind that the person who wrote First and Second Samuel wanted us to think of that as a romantic relationship. The way that it's written, the way that the story goes, the details of that story, and, and then also the way that Jonathan's story is intertwined with his sister's story. And his sister was Michal, and Michal was David's first wife. And I think that the author was, was intending for us to think of both of those as romantic relationships with David. And the reason for that is when you, when you read First and Second Samuel, you have, to, you have to read it through the lens that this was written by someone who was trying to make a case that David's kingdom was legitimate. The first king of Israel was Saul. And so by rights, the next king should have been Saul's children or Saul's son. But Saul... Um, kingdom ended up coming to an end, and David ended up taking over. And the person who wrote First and Second Samuel was, from the details, seems to have been someone who was maybe close to David, knew David intimately, knew things about the court, the gossip, the court gossip, but also was very committed to David as king and to the idea that Saul was not a legitimate king. And part of making that case is pointing out that both of Saul's children fell in love with David. <laughs> that Michal fell in love with him and married him, and Jonathan fell in love with him. And so I think it's very difficult to read those. I think we, ha- we kind of have to read with prejudice in order to read it as just a friendship relationship. We have to come in with the lens of saying, well, it can't possibly be a romantic relationship because men can't fall in love with each other. That's not possible. Because when you read the text, just letting your, you know, without prejudice, I think it's very clear 
that Jonathan loved David and Mikal loved David, and that's part of the point. Well, in your book, I thought was very telling was the passage, and I should have marked it, but I didn't. But it was where Saul and his King Saul and the Queen were sitting at the dinner table with Jonathan, and they're scolding. Jonathan and saying, how can you do this to us? How can you embarrass us like this? And how can you uh, be with David as a woman? And so, and things like that. And, you know, I know a lot of uh, young gay men whose parents have talked to them the same way. You know, how can you do this to us? How can you embarrass us like that? And it sounded like modern times. A person would only say that when uh, there was romance going on. And did you find yes. that right there? Yeah. yeah. And so Jonathan is trying to talk to his father about David and trying to plead for David with his father. And Saul, and this sounds just like like the conversation that you would expect in a movie where a father is upset because his son is gay. Um, he says, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. So, you know, it's the mother's fault. Yeah. It's always the mother's fault. <laughs> it's always fault. the mother's fault. <laughs> and, and then that perverse, you know, it's somehow like he's, Jonathan is tainted with sexual perversion. Um, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen David, the son of Jesse, to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? And, you know, that... It's just so, so much like the kinds of conversations that many of us have had with our parents who were ashamed of our sexual orientation or ashamed of our gender identity. Yeah, yes. I think that's a, a, very, a very telling passage. Yeah, it is. And also, you know, the, there's the passages where Jonathan actually gives David... His he clothes. strips himself naked yeah, the first time. Gives he, all of his clothes. The first know. time he meets David, he says that the soul of Jonathan, the nephesh, the um, nephesh is a Hebrew word that means like your being, the part of you that is like the most you part of you, was bound to the soul of David, and he stripped off his armor and gave it to David, which was. I mean, all of that. There, there's just so much rich imagery there. Right. And I know that that's the way I felt when I met Rob, you know? Yeah. The first time I met Rob, because I did have that. I'm lucky that I had that love at first sight kind of thing happen. And we were at church, and we were at an event, and we sat at a table across from each other. And he he said, I'm Rob. And he shook my hand, and he smiled. And... My nephesh was bound to his nephesh in that moment, you know. Um, I certainly know how that that feels. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Well, are there any other passages in the Bible that? So that, there's you know, another that one would... that I I do want to get to eunuchs. Yeah, okay, um, I do too. But, uh, um, obviously, but uh, I'm but, sort of fascinated because the. The Christian church has become so kind of prudish and, and anti-body. Mm -hmm. But didn't David dance naked before the Lord? Yeah, David was a very... I um, mean, and he, he was, he was the, the person out of, you know, after God's own heart. Yes. And yet David did these things, right? Yeah, yeah. David so, was a very sensual and sensuous and sexual person. 
And um, and like I said, you know, the um, first and second Samuel seems to have been written by someone who knew the court gossip and knew how sexual and sensual David was. And yet we have been poisoned by body shaming and by sex right. shaming in the church to the point where we can't allow for any of that anymore. And we, we don't even... Well, we don't even read the Song of Solomon. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, right. that's not even taught in the churches, yet it's in the Bible. Right. My grandmother, the Song of Songs was not in her Bible. She <laughs> just skipped over it. It, it. She like she thought it shouldn't have been included, and as far as she was concerned, it wasn't. And Song of Songs, for people who don't know, for those of us, those who are listening who don't know, um, Song of Songs is an amazingly sexual book um, that has all kinds of double entendre and, you know, I will climb your tree and, and <laughs> sit under your shade and eat your fruit and all this. Like, I mean, it's a very, very sexual book that just celebrates sexuality. I mean, in, in an amazing... Another thing, just real quickly about Song of Songs. Song of Songs is the only book in the Bible that... Scholars are almost certain was written by a woman. And the reason for that is because it's part of a genre of, of literature um, that was of poems and songs that were sung um, as, a, as a bride was getting ready for her wedding. The women would write these songs and sing them to her to, to get her in the mood for the wedding. And they're always very sexual. They're always very luscious and lots of double <laughs> entendre. And they're always written by women. Always. They're never written by men. And so when you read this and you see these other, other songs very similar to it in the ancient Near East, you're like, oh, there's a book in the Bible that was almost certainly written by a woman. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And it's the most sexual. It is. It's very, yeah. Uh, it'll make you blush. Yeah. <laughs> I suggest reading it because it will make you blush. Yeah. You were so, going to mention uh, um, one other? I do want to get to eunuchs eventually, yeah. but I want to talk about um, the centurion servant. Oh, yeah. Because right. I think that that's a really important. Um, it's a little, it's going to be a little tricky to talk about it on the radio just because of some of the language is really important and it's easier if you can visualize it. But it is an example but, of ultimate faith. I mean, I really was always impressed with the yes. story of the centurion and saying, if you speak it, then it's done. You don't need to come and see right. my servant. Right. And, yeah. Uh, so the story is, and one of the things that I like about this story is that it kind of blows up the myth that the Gospels all agree with each other because there's two different versions of this story. In one of the Gospels, the centurion comes to Jesus himself, and in another Gospel, he sends somebody to Jesus. Um, and the two Gospels have a different account. They don't agree with each other, but it's clearly the same story. So the man comes, I'm going to use the version, I think it's in Luke, where the man comes to Jesus on behalf of, of his pais, and I'm going to use the Greek word, P-A-I-S, pais, who is, is sick and dying. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus says to him, okay, I'll come to your house and heal him. And he says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house, but I'm, I know that I'm the kind of man that I can just say to this servant, go and do this, and this other servant, go and do that. So just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. And then Jesus turns to the people around him and says, I've never seen faith like this in any of the children of Israel. And then turns to the Roman centurion and says, go, your servant is healed. And when he gets back home, 
the servant is up and eating and fine. So maybe I can help people understand a little bit of the Greek behind that. Um, I think that word, pais, is really important for understanding this story. So pais was a word in Greek that could have three meanings. It could either be a son, like your child. It could also mean your slave, like just any old slave. Or it could mean a slave who had been bought as a lover. And we have to get ourselves back into the mindset of that time. Think about if you were going to, if you were just any old straight guy and you wanted a lover, um, a wife, you would pay a dowry to or bride price to her father. And so essentially you bought, because women were property, you bought and sold your wives. But if you were gay and you wanted a lover, you could also buy your lover, and that would be your pais. Okay, I think we're going to stop and come back to this in in just a minute. Okay. Okay, we're back with uh, Gender Trouble and and talking uh, with Reverend Tyler Connolly. And, well, our general subject has been about homosexuality in the Bible, and then soon we're going to be talking about are there transgender characters in the Bible. But right now we're talking about the centurion uh, and how Jesus healed the centurion's servant and and the relationship the centurion had with his servant or slave. So in both versions of this story, this Roman centurion says, describes this person as his pais. And a pais could be a slave, a son, or a slave who's bought as a lover. So the question is, which one is it? What's the relationship of this centurion to this pais? Is it his son? Is it just any old slave? Or is it his special slave, the one that he chooses as a lover? And so we have to look at the context of the stories to figure out which of these it is. And I think an example of how, how you might think of this word is think if you're like in the plantation south and someone uses the word boy. A boy could be my son, could be my slave, or it could be an affectionate word like for a lover. So if a plantation master points out to the field and says, that's my boy, you know exactly that he means his slave. If a plantation master points to the white kid who's in the house and says, that's my boy, you know he's talking about his son. Or if the plantation's wife says about the master, that's my boy, you know that she's using it in that it's he's my man, yeah, he's my lover, an affectionate way, term, right? Yeah. So Pais has sort of those same three. It's not exactly the same, but it's, it's yeah, you know. Cool. So we're wondering, like, what kind of relationship is this? Well, we know that it is an important relationship because there's no other place in the scriptures, in the Gospels, where anyone asks for healing for someone who's not a family member. 
Every other story of healing where someone asks for healing for someone other than themselves is for a family member. And so that's one cue that this is, it's not just to anybody, it's probably an important relationship, but that wouldn't really be enough to, to convince me that this was the man's lover, you know, and it certainly wouldn't be enough for my husband, who's a Missourian, the show me state. But in one of the gospels, the narrator describes this person as a doulos entimos, which means a favored slave. So at that point, when you know that it's a doulos and not a son, you know that it's a slave. So we know that it's not the first category. We know yeah. it's not his son. So it has to be a slave, but then we're still wondering what kind of slave. Well, it's an entomos doulos, an important, a, a favored slave. And then in one of the Gospels, he says, this is my pais, and he describes when he says, I say to this slave, do this, and I say to that slave, do that. He uses the other word. So he has made a distinction. The between, centurion. Yes. Yeah. Between this particular pais and others who are slaves. And so I think that when you look at all of the context and all of the story, you know, how it's a Roman centurion coming to a street preacher... And, you know, why would he humble himself for just one of his servants for our slave for somebody who didn't matter? So why would he do that? Why would when every yeah. other story is of somebody who it was somebody treasured, it was a family member. The fact that he calls this particular slave a pais and he calls the other slaves douloses. And then the the fact that one of the gospels describes this as a favorite slave. All of those things together make me think that this was the kind of pais that was a lover, that that was the word that was being used for a reason. Right. And the other thing is that when this man came to Jesus and said, my pais is sick, the thing in everybody's mind would have been, oh, a pais must be his lover. If it was really important to Jesus, if gay relationships were as horrible as they are to some of our Christian brothers and sisters, then don't you think Jesus would have stepped back and said, I might be willing to heal him, but you're going to have to break up. <laughs> or, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, you have and, to remain solid. Right. And yet Jesus' response is, okay, I'll come and heal him. And in that moment of healing, he restored that relationship. If that pais had died, then that relationship would have been broken. A relationship that was most likely a relationship of two lovers, two gay lovers. And yet by healing that relationship, by healing that servant, Jesus healed that relationship made it possible for them to go on loving each other, for yes. go on, to go on being lovers. And I, I think it's just an amazingly beautiful story of Jesus meeting someone who, to my mind, 
almost certainly was asking healing for his lover. And Jesus' response was kind and compassionate and gracious and healing. Right. Yeah, I, I love that story, and it does make me think of Alexander the Great, who people mm-hmm. acknowledge as maybe the greatest soldier that ever lived, the greatest general. And yet we all know the story, or a lot of us know the story of Alexander the Great and Bagoas, who was a young um, eunuch, right. actually, a boy that Alexander the Great loved passionately. And, uh, of course, growing up, I always wanted to be Bagoas. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, uh, and that, was, that didn't diminish Alexander the Great in any kind of way. Right. And I, one of the interesting things that I think shows us how casual and how, um, how far we've, we've, gone, we've come from the way that people in the Greco-Roman world just accepted gay people casually as part of everyday life um, is that when Alexander took Bagoas as his lover, and he was very, I mean, it was, he was very open about the fact that Bagoas was his lover. He kissed him in public. He, you know, they hung on each other. And, and, and Alexander's men were furious about this. They were so upset about this. But there's nothing in any of the stories that says that they were upset because Alexander took a male lover. They were upset because Alexander took a Persian lover. And that's what they keep talking about is how he took a Persian, how he's dating this Persian, how he's kissing this Persian. And no one cares that it's a man or a woman. Well, that was one of Um, the contentions that was actually going on between Alexander and his generals were that Alexander was wanting to kind of become Persian. Right. He was sort of enamored by the idea of people prostrating themselves before him. The generals refused. Right. You know, they said, we're not going to do that. But he kind of wanted people to treat him like they used to treat, you know, at that time it was King Darius. But his generals really kind of rebelled against that. And so Bogos was kind of a symbol of right, the of that uh, Persian-ness. Persian, how would you say it, becoming Persian or whatever right. it was right. uh, of Alexander. Right. But I think that also points to, you know, when people, when some people read the story of the centurion and his pais, they come at it with a lens that it couldn't be possible that a centurion, that, you know, a commander could possibly be in a gay relationship. But that's because of our lens. That's because of our prejudice. It's because of the ways that we think about gay people. And I think that it's reading into this story something that's not there. And that the people who read this story in that context and in that culture would have known exactly what was happening there. You know, um, one other thing that I want to just say about the centurion that I love is that for our Catholic sisters and brothers, in the Mass, right after the host is consecrated and the priest says, Behold the Lamb of God, then all of the people in the sanctuary quote this centurion. In that moment when they are coming to God, in that weekly or daily, depending on your devotion, coming to God and saying, God, come to me as Jesus came to the people. 
they quote the centurion and they say, Lord, I am not worthy to come for you to come under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. And so every day, dozens, hundreds of times a day, people throughout the world are quoting this centurion, this man whose lover Jesus healed in the Catholic Mass. And in so doing, emulating his faith. Right. And I love that. I love that in that in the mass and in that moment, right after the consecration, we all quote together this centurion's Yeah. That's that's neat. And yet the Catholic Church is still one of the very yes. strong holdouts of being uh anti gay. Yeah. And, I, uh, I know a lot of my friends just really love Pope Francis, and, and I, I love Pope Francis, too, for a lot of reasons. I wish that he would listen to the centurion and listen to Jesus and realize that gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people can be fully and completely welcomed into the church and into God's kingdom. Yeah, wonderful. Okay, we're going to take a break right now, and we'll be back, and we're going to be talking about transgender characters in the Bible. Okay, we're back with Gender uh, Troubles, and we're talking with uh, Reverend Tyler Connolly. And, well, in during that break, Tyler and I are having a wonderful <laughs> conversation about eunuchs, and so we are going to talk about eunuchs and what are eunuchs, and were eunuchs uh, transgender? And so I, I think for me, obviously, as a transgender person, and I find this very fascinating to talk about, and, and I'm thrilled with uh, Tyler's knowledge. So let's just begin, and, and who are we going to talk about? I guess we should say that I did a master's thesis on eunuchs in the ancient Near East. I spent two years studying about eunuchs in the ancient Near East, and there were two years between the time when I wrote the children are free and the time that I wrote my master's thesis. And so some of my ideas, and that was one of the things that Susan was sort of challenging me on, was that it seemed like in the children are free that we obscured, and I think in some ways we did, obscure the trans aspects of eunuchs. So for those of you out there who don't know, a eunuch is um, someone who was assigned male at birth, who has male genitalia, and whose male genitalia are cut off in some way. Either um, their testicles are removed, or in some cases, their testicles and their penis were removed. And in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, eunuch, the word for eunuch is saris, S-A-R-I-S. And one of the difficulties with studying eunuchs in the Hebrew Bible is that at some point, cisgendered straight men decided that um, certain of the Saris couldn't possibly be eunuchs because, for example, um, Joseph is sold into slavery and he's sold to a man named Potiphar. Potiphar has a wife. Potiphar is also a Saris. And so um, a translator was like, well, he couldn't possibly be a eunuch. He has a wife. And so they translated him as prince or officer. And so sometimes when you're reading English translations, you miss the eunuchs because they get mistranslated as officer or prince. 
but they're all over the Bible. They're eunuchs all over the Bible. And in the ancient Near East, eunuchs were thought of as living somewhere between the genders. They were not really men, but they weren't really women either. And there were also, there was a whole class of of eunuchs who, um, we talked about them last week, the priestesses of Sibylle, who, who were castrated and then lived as women for the rest of their lives. And so I think many of the, the eunuchs could also be thought of as, in modern terms, as being trans women. And, um, and there's a whole class of eunuchs in India who have begun to think of themselves as trans women, who live as, as women, the hijra. And they actually, they say that their spiritual ancestors, they, you know, obviously if they were eunuchs, they can't have biological children, but um, that their spiritual ancestors are the, the eunuchs who served in the harems in Persia. That those are the spiritual ancestors of the of the hijra. Yeah, I, I want to point out actually, as a transgender person, and somebody that spends a lot of time, I facilitate transgender support groups, and have been around literally thousands of transgender people, and very very few trans women will think of themselves as eunuchs. I'm kind of an exception there, uh, and I do know others, but generally, maybe because of culture and there's such a deep stigma to the concept of being a eunuch or not being a gender. I mean, more and more we're seeing people identifying as non-binary or mm-hmm. outside of the gender binary of man, woman, male, female. But for myself, the longer I have been uh, I would say trans, use the word trans instead of transgender, as long as I have finally become me, the more I see myself actually as a eunuch in the biblical sense. I see myself as not as being in between. Mm-hmm. And, but that's an exception. And, uh, and I think that, and for a lot of uh, trans women, they honestly feel, and I believe they are, women as any other women and they uh, live their life as women and they become they are women they're women from the time they were birth they were simply misassigned you know some random doctor misassigned them so I can only speak for myself and I can't speak for other trans people but I do believe there are trans people do feel that there are eunuchs yeah and I and I think that from a biblical perspective, from a ancient Near East perspective, that any time you see a eunuch, any every eunuch should be thought of as some sort of gender variant person. That eunuchs were always gender variant. Um, they were thought of by other people as being gender variant. Um, within that gender variance, there's a wide spectrum, as we know. There are gender variant people who identify who identify as Female. There are gender gender variant people who identify as male. There are gender variant people who identify as non-gendered. Yeah, you know, agender or right. Yeah. You know, I, but that any time you see a eunuch, their gender is there's gender trouble. <laughs> yes, <laughs> there's that's, gender that's trouble the there. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I do want to talk about a couple of the eunuchs in the Bible. But first, I want to read this beautiful passage from Isaiah. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard, but I'm going to use um, Susan's preferred translation for one little bit. 
Isaiah says, For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. And so within the scriptures, there's this beautiful passage that says to anybody who has gender trouble, I think, that God accepts you and that God will give you a place and a name and an everlasting name that will never be cut off. I have to tell you, when I found that passage, and I did discover it on my own, in my own studies, and when I found that, I actually just cried, and I knew that God loved me. Yeah. And uh, it was, it it gave me a foundation to continue. And uh, so, yeah, I'm very grateful for Isaiah. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I think that there's another eunuch in the Bible who was very grateful for Isaiah. Yeah, so that, <laughs> that eunuch is in Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, um, Philip, who's one of the apostles, is sent out into the desert, into the middle of nowhere. He doesn't know why. But when he gets out there, he finds this eunuch sitting in a chariot, reading a scroll of Isaiah. And... and And the eunuch is reading the place in Isaiah where it says he was despised and rejected. And for Philip, this was was talking about Jesus, that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, this person who was despised and rejected. But I imagine this eunuch um, who was from Ethiopia, and so he's, he's doubly different. In the scriptures, anytime someone is described as being from Ethiopia, they're being described as a sub-Saharan African. So Ethiopia was sort of this big, vast place. Anywhere south of Egypt was Ethiopia. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean Ethiopia. I, um, I yeah, like, it's where the Queen of Sheba came from. Right, right. And so it was also a very, very important area. Right. And having grown up in southern Africa, I like to think of the Queen of Sheba actually coming from the Zimbabwean Empire <laughs> um, in southern Africa, which is a vast, vast empire that was coincided with King Solomon at the same time period. And and if Ethiopia is everything south of Egypt, then she could have been from Zimbabwe. Yes, um, okay. <laughs> but he's an African man, a eunuch, and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah. And, and one of the questions is, why would this guy from sub-Saharan Africa come to Jerusalem with the scroll of Isaiah? Well, the reason, I think, is probably because of Isaiah chapter 56. He was a eunuch. And someone gave him a scroll and said, there's these people and they have this text and it says that eunuchs, that their God loves eunuchs. Right. And that's why he had the scroll of Isaiah. And then he went to Jerusalem. I can imagine, and this is not in the Bible, it's completely my reading into the story, but I can imagine this eunuch going to the temple in Jerusalem and in the temple in Jerusalem being told, well, in Deuteronomy it says that eunuchs can't be part of the assembly of God. Yeah, it says that. In the same way that our trans sisters and brothers and our gay and lesbian and bisexual um, sisters and brothers they find scriptures that affirm them. They find a Jesus who is love, and then they go to the church and find people who say, yes, but Leviticus says. 
And I can imagine this eunuch going to the temple in Jerusalem, and he has this scroll from Isaiah that says eunuchs will be given a place and a name, and he's so excited for this religion, and then someone says, oh, but in Deuteronomy it says anyone whose testicles have been cut off can't be a part of the assembly of God, and is clobbered with the rules. Which is what happened to me. I mean, who I love Jesus with all of my heart, strength and soul or however the expression goes and uh, and I was cut off right I was just totally and, shunned and so then he has this scroll and so then he reads he looks for a place in the scroll and finds this person who was despised and rejected and begins to identify with that person and then Philip comes along and says, and he says, who is this? Who's this person who was despised and rejected? And Philip says, well, let me tell you about him. And for Philip, it was talking about Jesus. And then the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, well, is there anything that would keep me from being baptized? And I'm sure like many of our trans and gay sisters and brothers, he was thinking of a clobber passage, yes. you know? And expecting Philip to say, well, there is Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy <laughs> chapter 23, it says that no man whose testicles have been cut off can be, enter the assembly. But Philip says, no, there's water right there. Let's baptize you. Hmm. And welcomes him into the community of believers. And there is now, to this day, a whole group of people in Ethiopia, Coptic Christians, who say, this is the man, this, this guy who brought Christianity to us. And it's because of him that all of us are Christians. I didn't know that. Yes. I've met Coptic Christians, and, and, uh, but I didn't know that. Yeah. So this is the end of the show. This well, is Gender Trouble. And thank you. Thank you very welcome. much for so being fun. here. We will see you next week, Thursday from 4 to 5.